Quick disclaimer, there's some light adult stuff this week on the show, some playful, painless mutilation, and the briefest, non-graphic mention of suicide. Please visit the post on mythpodcast.com or follow the link in the show notes if any of those are of concern to you or those listening with you. This week on Myths and Legends, we're back in the Greek myths with a story of witches, transformation, and how one young man will stop at nothing in his quest for magic, even if he really should. For the Creature of the Week, we'll ask the question, how many McDonald's filet of fish sandwiches is too many? Because the Creature this week apparently loves filet of fish and also filleting cars. This is Myths and Legends, episode 296, To Bewitch or Not to Bewitch. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, we're in the Greek myths with a standalone pair of episodes. It comes from the story Metamorphoses by Apuleius, and it's actually the source of the Cupid and Psyche story. But the surrounding narrative is amazing, bizarre, and a truly great story in its own right. It's apparently the only Latin novel that we have a complete version of today, and the story is truly unexpected and really good. It's very modern in its feel and really holds together. Anyway, we'll jump in today not with our protagonist, Lucius, a young man traveling to Thessaly to deliver a letter, but with the guy he ran into on the road, Aristomenes, and the story of his epic cheese run. So, I love cheese, right? I love it so much that I ran off to Thessaly to get some cheese. My buddy, Lupus, was going to hook me up when I got there. But get this, he sold the cheese. I used to think that Lupus was the best, but no. I don't know who the best is, but it's not Lupus. Anyway, I go to the bath to relax after a long trip, and who do I see there? Socrates. Not that Socrates, it's a different guy. Which was weird because I totally thought he was dead. Like, you know, his wife and children in the entire town that we came from did. And just between you and me and any other stranger we're going to meet on this mountain pass, he's not looking great. I tell him that. He's not too excited to hear it. And he says, yes. He's alive, but I have to leave. He's all cagey and stuff. And I'm like, socks, come on, it's me. If you're in trouble, like, let me know. I'm a cheese merchant. I know people. The guy breaks down. He's sobbing. He says he just wanted to go to some gladiatorial games out here, watch some innocent guys be forced to murder each other. But instead, he was waylaid by bandits. They robbed him and left him for dead. And then things got bad. The innkeeper took him in for free to help him recuperate. Then she took him into her room. He had been in Thessaly as her thrall for months. His family thinks him dead. And I'm all like, well, now who's Mr. Family Man? He said, it's, she's a witch. She put him under a spell. That's assault. So I'm there, foot in my mouth, and I get this plan. I'm going to get him out of there. He's like, you can't do it. She can melt mountains, make spring solid, raise the dead. She's not messing around. The last three guys that tried to leave, she changed them into a beaver, a frog, and a ram. 
The ram guy was a lawyer. He still tries to go to court as a ram, and people just have to keep chasing him away. They tried to stone her, but she locked everyone in their houses for two days. And the guy who organized the stoning? She put his house on top of a mountain. Anyway, Socrates told me I couldn't stop her. And I'm like, buddy, I have just the plan. A new hotel room. Yeah, it was just down the street, but she had no idea where he was. We were good. For some extra security, I scooted one bed up against the door. Then, to calm our nerves, we drank way too much wine and passed out. Which, uh, witch escape pro tip? Don't do this! I woke up to the door not being kicked in, but completely blown off its hinges, and the bed flipping across the room and landing on me, but upside down so I was like a bed turtle. I shimmied up so I could see, and it did not look good. Two women stood in the room with a lantern and an unsheathed sword. The older one was saying something about not being like Calypso to Socrates' Odysseus, that Socrates was her beautiful Ganymede. And I thought that was a little generous to old socks there. Ganymede turns Zeus's head and Socrates was a 40-something with a paunch. I kind of regretted that thought, though, because the next instant, boom, sword in his neck. They had a leather bottle to catch his blood. Not a drop hit the floor. Then, the older one reached in the wound and pulled out his heart. She nodded to her friend, who took out a sponge and told the thing, You were born at sea, take care not to cross a river. I sat in shock, but the cold bath of terror hit me when both their eyes turned to me, crouching under the bed. They said I would pay for my impudence and curiosity, and I did, when they peed on me. They, what? Lucius, one of the listeners, asked walking alongside the man on the road. They peed on me, Aristomenes grimaced. Look, I don't know why, he continued. If it was like a dominance thing or shame, I definitely felt shame. Anyway, they left after that, and I knew I had to get out of there. I get my stuff, say a quick apology to Socrates' body, and ring the bell for the porter. It's some guy, and I woke him up. He doesn't understand why I'm wanting to leave at this hour. What with the robbers? I tell him you can't take from someone who has nothing and ten wrestlers can't strip a naked man. He yawns and asks about the other guy. He going too? Then it dawns on me. The witches didn't spare me. They only delayed my execution. Everyone is going to think I killed Socrates. I could be crucified for this. (laughs) I chuckle and then run back to the room. I look around the room. There's no way out. The porter is up, and I don't know how to hide a body. I'd rather die here than on a tree. So I grab a rope, loop it around the rafter, and fall when I'm trying to climb. I hit Socrates' body, and I shriek. And then the man woke up from the dead. What are you doing? He yells at me. And I'm all like, what are you doing? Alive? He asks me why I smell like a urinal, and that's when I look down. Oh. You see, the beds were in their place. In fact, Socrates was in his. It wasn't the witches, it was... Yeah, I had too much to drink. There was a pounding at the door. It was the porter. Our stuff was ready. I chuckled, telling Socrates that I was just waking him up by 
laying on top of him in bed, smelling like pee. Time to go. So we hit the road super early, but managed to avoid robbers or more witches. By lunch, we're a good distance away, and I unwrapped the lunch the porter made us, and asked Socrates if that looked like spit to him. I shrug and eat it anyway, but Socks is all thirsty, and I tell him we're right by the river, go get a drink. As he's walking, he says he had the weirdest dream the night before. His throat was cut and closed with a sponge. The food fell from my hands as I ran over, but I was too late. As soon as his lips touched the water, the sponge fell out, and he dropped. It wasn't a dream. Socrates was dead. So you went back to the city and got revenge on the witches? Lucius asked. Aristomenes cocked an eyebrow. Uh, no. He quickly buried his friend in a shallow, unmarked grave and never returned there, or home, in case the witches would be looking for him. He remarried and now lives in Atolia. Lucius said, oh, well, he was actually on his way to Thessaly, to Hypatia. Oh, don't do that, Aristomenes said. Lucius pointed in the distance, well, kind of too late, we're here. And it was true. Lucius had been walking his horse and fell in with two other travelers on the road who were telling stories. The gates of Hypatia grew in the distance. Aristomenes' eyes grew wide. Oh, no. He turned and just ran in the other direction. Lucius, though, kept walking. Some guy who maybe got peed on by witches was not gonna scare him. Lucius stopped by the first inn in town, inquiring after the recipient of the letter, Milo. The woman laughed, Milo, yeah, he lived outside of town. He was super rich, but really cheap. In fact, he lived in squalor and forced his wife and their one enslaved girl to do the same. Lucius said, okay, cool. He traveled all this way to bring a letter to Milo for his friend, and he had banked on staying with the man. As he walked to Milo's house, though, he couldn't help but think of Aristomenes' story. It was bizarre, yet intriguing. People with the power to kill someone and bring them back from the dead to do whatever they wanted and then convince the world it was all a dream to live without consequences. That was true power. Who's there? Lucius heard. He introduced himself to the woman, who asked what he had as collateral. Gold or silver? He had to give something to enter the house to incentivize him not to steal. Lucius said he had a letter? A letter for Milo. There was a rustling. Silence. Then the voice replied that the master said he could come in, but they were keeping an eye on him. And as the door opened, Lucius couldn't take his eyes off the enslaved woman who had the job of the house's one and only servant. He was awestruck. Her name was Photus. She led him to the main room, where Milo and his wife sat on two separate couches. Milo smiled, saying that he had been expecting Lucius. Please, sit. Lucius looked around. Milo only had two couches? Milo turned to his wife, barking that he told the guests to sit. His wife rolled her eyes, stood, and left the room. Lucius said it was really fine, but okay. Milo explained that they were so afraid of burglars that they only had enough furniture for two people. 
They talked, and Milo, despite being a very tiresome individual who completely earned his reputation as a miser, insisted that Lucius stay. Lucius would have insisted on not putting Milo in the house out, but, you know, he didn't want to be rude. And also, the beautiful servant kept smiling at him, and he was smiling back. You know what? Sure, he could stay for a day or two. Lucius insisted on buying dinner, because Milo and co. were not going to eat. They didn't need to eat every meal. You could save so much money if you ate just every other day. That's how Milo found himself at the market. He bought a fish for 80 sesterces, haggled down from 100, and ran into a familiar face on the way back. It was one of his friends from school. The guy was now a big deal in Hypatia. He went around the market and made sure everyone had fair prices. And when he learned what Lucius had paid for the fish, he was flabbergasted. He went to the stall and asked the fishmonger, how dare he? He took all the fish, threw it on the ground, and stomped on it. That's what the fishmonger would get for price gouging. Was that all of it? The fishmonger nodded sadly. Then the friend looked to Lucius. Oh, yeah. He grabbed Lucius's fish, threw it atop the pile, and stomped on it too. He nodded. Lucius wasn't going to get price gouged in his market. A few hours later, Lucius laid back in bed. Well, he was laying on a hard mattress while his stomach slowly ate itself. But it was better than talking to Milo out there. The man was exhausting. He had to get out of this house. Lucius, Lucius heard as he was making preparations to leave the following day. He turned to see a woman who was about his mother's age, rushing toward him with a train of attendants. She scooped him up into her arms and, by the time she was finished, there was not a spot on his face unkissed or his cheek unpinched. She lowered him to the ground. Uh, hi? Lucius asked. He didn't know the woman? She tousled his hair. Ah, it had been so long. Of course he didn't remember his Aunt Barina. Lucius thought about it. Barina, yeah, his mom's friend? The woman smiled, the very same. She practically raised him, or helped to. She hadn't heard from Lucius's parents that he was going to be in Hypatia. Lucius told her it wasn't for long. He was leaving the following day. He was just out gathering supplies for the journey. He had stopped off as a quick favor to a friend back home. Barina insisted that he come over for dinner. Lucius's stomach stabbed at him. Uh, sure, yeah. That sounded good. He got her address and headed back. There, Photis, the enslaved woman, was washing the dishes. So, I'm sure there's symbolism I don't understand, but Lucius was really into... hair. He entered the house and saw her swaying there by the sink and told her, well, he just had to say it, she was stunning. Her hair was beautiful, like it was casually styled, yet clearly meticulous. He really liked it. Why don't you show me? Lucius paused. Uh, what? Show me how much you like it. Photos smiled and turned around to keep washing the dishes. Lucius said, wait, was this happening? He walked up behind her and, taking things a bit literally, kissed her hair. She turned with a laugh. She didn't think he could handle her. She started swaying in his arms. He made to kiss her again, this time not her hair, and she met him halfway. She moved back. Not here. Tonight, after she completed her duties, she would come to him.
We'll see Lucius learn something shocking about his hosts, but that will be right after this. Yeah, she's a witch, Aunt Barina reclined at the dinner party. Who? Lucius asked, trying to be polite, but devouring his first real meal in almost two days. Pamphile, Aunt Barina explained. Milo's wife, your hostess. He said, okay, but Fotis isn't. Who's Fotis? Lucius said, nobody. Wait, so the wife is a witch? Wow. Aunt Barina took another sip of wine. Yeah, Hippodia and Thessaly in general, has a big witch problem. Bodies weren't safe in their graves. They even sift through ashes, the funeral pyre. They even snipped body parts off the living. Right, Telefron? A groan came up from one of the guests in the back. Really? It's a good story that illustrates what I'm trying to say. You're here enjoying our food. Please tell my nephew about the witches. Telefron sighed. Lucius tried to catch a glimpse of the man, but he was behind a few rows of people, seated at the edge of the room. Okay, well, this story didn't happen in Hypatia, but Larissa, it's a different city in Thessaly, Thelifron explained. So, I went to see the Olympic Games. I was still a kid, right? But I had some time, so I thought, why not tour Thessaly? It's a region of ancient Greece, or as we call it, Greece, known for its plains surrounded by beautiful mountains, grain production, and horse rearing. Anywho, the problem with being young and traveling the world is that I didn't have a lot of money. When I made it to Larissa, I wasn't out of cash, but I was running low. So when I see this tall guy asking if someone wants to watch a corpse for cash, I was like, yeah. Watching a corpse is like the easiest thing possible. They're not going anywhere. They're corpses. So I go up to this guy and ask him, what's up? Are corpses in Thessaly in the habit of running away? I think that's pretty funny, but he is super serious. Apparently, witches come and snip bits off corpses like ears, fingers, noses, all that sorts of stuff, hair, and use them in their witch stuff. I tell him I'm interested in helping, but he's all like, you don't understand what you're asking. They can take the shape of anything, dogs, mice, birds, even flies. They lull people to sleep with enchantments and then snip off body parts. It's gross and dangerous. But, you know, I'll be real. It didn't sound so bad to me. And all I had to do was not sleep. I've pulled all-nighters before and the price was 300 gold pieces, that would be enough for me to wrap up this trip and then go on another. Of course, if the witches took anything from the body, then I'd have to give it up from my body, those were the rules, but whatever. I wasn't going to fall asleep. I took the job. I said hello to the widow, and sat while they inspected the corpse, seeing that he had his nose and ears and all that intact. I agreed to the price, and when everyone had gone to bed, I asked for a lamp and enough oil to stay lit until dawn. Oh, and two flagons of warm wine. Okay, I'm going to go on record saying that this was really my first mistake. Every other time I stayed up all night with my buds, wine was involved. Turns out there's a difference between party time with your friends and sitting alone in a quiet, dimly lit room. After I finished the first bottle, I blinked. I blinked, and it was morning. They were unlocking the door. I rubbed the sleep from my eyes as best I could, and the wife and her servants pushed through the door flung the sheet off the dead man, and breathed. He was in one piece. I, too, breathed. Okay, no harm, no foul. They don't know that I slept. They paid me and said that they thought of me as a friend. 
I smiled and told them they could think of me as a servant because I would be happy to work for them again. So they, I guess, did treat me like a servant when they beat me and threw me out on the street for talking to them. No joke. I decided to stick around for the funeral in that it was blocking my way out of town after I had breakfast. Turned out, we were all in for a funeral and a show. You see, this older man was tearing out his beautiful white hair, saying that the dead man, who happened to be his nephew, the guy I had spent the night watching, had been murdered, poisoned by his wife, so she and her lover could gain control of the estate. He really got the crowd worked up, and they, it was weird, encouraged the urchins, the children who spent all day in the street, to kill her. I'm not sure if that's something that happened, seemed overly dark to me, But the widow, the woman who just paid me, said that she was innocent and called on the gods and all that was sacred to prove her innocence. The older man relented, saying that he wanted justice, not vengeance at those tiny, murdery hands. He had found a prophet, a man from Egypt who, for a large fee, could bring the deceased soul back from Hades for a short time. He actually already called the man, and the man was already there. So, yeah. The crowd was down to listen to this guy. And frankly, I was too. I mean, this was way more dramatic than most funerals. So I climbed a rock for a good view. A good view of the, yeah, screaming. To be real, I thought the corpse would be super happy to return to the world of the living. He was not. He was screaming about how he was in pain, how he had already paid for passage across the River Styx, and how why couldn't they leave him to his rest. Overall, he presented kind of a not terrifying picture of death. That is, if you can keep necromancers away from your body. The necromancer, though, was not patient. He threatened to keep the guy there and have him tortured by harpies if he didn't immediately talk about the conditions of his death. The corpse groaned. Yeah, his wife did do it. She gave him a poisoned cup. He understood why she was mad. She had committed adultery, but he had to. Things were not great. And he was going to leave her. Still, it was murder. Not cool. How do we know he's telling the truth? A voice called out, one that was suspiciously close to where the accused wife stood locked in the arms of the city guard. The corpse said he was telling the truth because he knew something no one else did. I was super excited for more city gossip when he started talking about this man who guarded him last night. I grew more and more nervous when he described how I drank a bunch of wine and fell asleep. So I did not know this, but me and the dead guy, we had the same name. According to him, when the witches called him to the door, I got up first and walked over because I'm not a corpse. Apparently, there was only one hole in the door that was accessible to the witches. So they called me to it and, yeah, lopped off my nose and ears. And I was like, okay, please, I'd know if I lost my nose and ears. And I felt them and... They were squishy. Yeah, it turns out the witches replaced my nose and ears with wax, so no one would know that they had been there. The whole city lost it. I didn't even stick around to see what they did with the wife. Everyone was pointing and laughing like, oh, ha ha ha, there's this guy who was mutilated by witches. Hilarious. Jerks. The Lefron stood from the back of the room. He now kept his hair long and wore a linen mask around town. He stuck around Thessaly, because I guess having your nose cut off by witches was a tragically common occurrence, so it cut down on how many times he had to tell that story, except at dinner parties, of course. So as you can see, 
Witches are no laughing matter, Lamparina said. Except for all the horrible people who laughed at the guy who went through such a terrible ordeal. Lucius needed to be careful at his host's house. Lucius nodded. He would be careful. And then, quietly to himself, he said he'd be careful to watch his hostess and learn the sorcery himself. What was that? Amparina asked. Did he say something? Lucius shook his head. No, he should probably be getting back. So Lucius did not leave town. He had dinners with his aunt and would return to Milo's to spend time with Fotis, who was always waiting for him after she closed up shop in the house. Milo was happy to have someone to talk at, and Pamphile, Milo's wife, and the witch, was not around. She didn't eat with her husband and the enslaved woman because they didn't eat, and she was up to her own activities somewhere in the house. Still, Lucius was going to figure out what. At the same time, crime was increasing in Hypatia. It got to the point that Lucius had to buy a sword. He kept it strapped to his side under his cloak. And finally, the night came that he had to use it. He was walking home late from Aunt Barina's when he heard them. Three men. They were big and they were slamming on Milo's door, talking about how they were going to get in there, how they would kill the man of the house. Lucius drew his sword, raced over, and jammed it in the side of one of the men. The man let out a scream. The other tried to grab Lucius, but Lucius turned and slashed him across his belly. The third tried to run. Lucius chased him down, leapt on his back, and stabbed downward with the weapon. Breathing heavily, Lucius staggered back to the door, where he found it open, and Fotis standing there. Lucius's hands were dripping red. She looked at him. What had he done? Next up, a murder trial. But that will, once again, be right after this. Lucius had been arrested for the murders of three locals. He tried to explain to the guards, and then to the magistrates, that these people were trying to break into his host's house, but no one would listen. He wasn't from this land, and he had killed three of their own. There were also apparently witnesses who came out of the woodwork, people in adjoining houses who heard the scuffle and wanted to be part of the proceedings, naming Lucius as a bloodthirsty murderer. He would hang for this, in a metaphorical sense. It was actually way worse. He would literally be crucified. That was a form of capital punishment in those days. He begged the court, in tears, to tell him why. Why would he kill these men? He didn't even know them. He didn't have any enemies in town. He barely knew anyone. The judge looked on Lucius with disgust. He knew he was supposed to wait until he heard all the arguments and junk, but he was done. This man, this horrible man, had killed these people in cold blood, and he would be executed for it. Lucius begged him, no, please, they had to believe him. The judge shook his head. No, in fact, he was going to bring out the bodies of the dead so that Lucius and the court could see the result of the man's crime before Lucius went to the tree. Lucius begged him not to, but a heap was wheeled into the courtroom. 
The attendant uncovered it, and Lucius winced while the courtroom laughed. He opened his eyes to see wineskins, wineskins that had been slashed open. Those were the three hairy men. That was the red that had stained his hands. What had happened? The judge was in tears. He said, yeah, Lucius didn't kill people. He had fought with wineskins Milo left piled outside his door for some reason. How much did Lucius have to drink that night? Lucius stood stunned, so he wasn't going to be crucified? The judge waved his hand. No, of course not. The guards and the magistrates thought it was so funny that he earnestly thought the wineskins were burglars. They floated the idea of this little prank. Lucius started shaking. He actually thought that he was going to be crucified. Yeah, that's why it's so funny. The judge laughed. See, Lucius gets it. All right, court dismissed. Fotis put her arm around Lucius that night as he sat on the edge of the bed, still processing almost being executed. The wineskins, he could have sworn they talked. They fought. Oh, yeah, that's because they did, Fotis winced. That was kind of her bad? Lucius turned. What? Fotis explained. Her mistress, Pamphile, Milo's wife, She was not super into the guy who only had two pieces of furniture and was forcing intermittent fasting on the rest of them, but she had a wandering eye. She wasn't shy about using her sorcery, but never more so when a handsome young man caught her attention. Anyway, there's this Boeotian that she spotted in the market, and she was obsessed. She gave Fotis the job of collecting some of his hair from the barber, but since the whole city was on high alert for witches stealing parts of people, the barber slapped Fotis's hand, telling her that if she came back, he would have her dragged before the magistrates. Fotis didn't want to come back without hair, though. She knew how cruel the mistress could be. That's when she spotted the wineskins. They still had the goat hair on them, and it was about the same length as the color of the Boeotian man's hair. So yeah, those goat wineskins were, in fact, moving. They were under the spell of Pamphile though she didn't know exactly what she was calling. She thought it was the attractive young man, who would be entranced to stop at nothing to be with her, not three wine-filled sacks covered in goat hair. Fotis had been going to open up the door when she discovered that the spell had gone horribly awry. But before she could get Lucius to safety, the whole neighborhood had seen him. For all the trauma, Lucius saw his window. He stood. Fotis. Fotis was the reason for his anguish, the reason he almost died. She said she was sorry. What could she do to make it up to him? Lucius said there was one way. He wanted to see Pamphile work her magic. More specifically, he wanted to see her change into an animal. Fotis said, uh, okay. That seemed like a weird request, but sure, why not? There was only one problem, though. She was super suspicious by nature. The whole city, the whole region, wasn't too keen on witches and sorcerers. Pamphile shut herself up in absolute solitude when she worked. She had a workshop on the top floor of the house. Fotis would keep an eye out for an opportunity for Lucius to watch her change into something. That opportunity apparently came a few nights later. Fotis came in in urgent, hushed whispers, saying that tonight was the night. Apparently, Pamphile had been unable to get to the Boeotian man by more magical means, and she was just flying off to his room at night. You know, 
pulling a Zeus. Anyway, Lucius should be able to see her transform. The pair snuck to the far edge of the house, up the stairs, and crouched at the door of the workshop. Inside, Pamphile was searching through ointments until, ah, there it was. She took one down from the shelf and began smearing herself in it. Skin turned to feathers, her feet turned to talons, a hooked beak grew from her face. In moments, an owl hopped up into the window and took flight. Yeah, so there you see it. She turns into an animal. We should go. But Lucius wasn't moving. Just one try, Lucius said, moving to the door handle. Fotis grabbed his hand. What? He can't be serious. He said he wanted to be able to fly above the city like Zeus's eagle. And now that opportunity was in front of him. He was going to take it. Fotis said that if he went in there, she would not be able to protect him. Lucius shrugged. Well, whatever. He was going to take that risk. Fotis put a hand on his shoulder. No. The room was rigged with traps. It would alert Pamphile the moment he stepped inside. She was allowed in there, trusted. Fotis would get it for him. But he had to promise to come back. He did. And she turned the handle. Fotis worked quickly. She didn't like being in the workshop when she was allowed to be in there. There were bits of human remains all over the place. It was horrifying. She grabbed an ointment from the shelf and stole back out. Lucius already had his shirt off. He snatched the salve from her hands and started rubbing it on his chest. By the time he finished up, he knew something was wrong. Feathers weren't sprouting, but small, gray hair was. His tail wasn't flat and wide like a hawk, but long and stringy, with a tuft on the end. His ears popped out and became hairy. His belly drooped, and his hands hardened into small, pointed hooves. He hadn't turned into an owl, but a donkey. Oh, no, Fotis said, wincing. You know what it was? She grabbed the wrong ointment. Okay, okay, this was okay, it will be okay. Lucius screamed out, okay, how was this okay? But it came out not as words, but as the screeching hee-haw of a donkey. Fotis took his head into her arms. He needed to be quiet. She led him downstairs to the stable. This was easy. He only needed to eat some roses, and then he would change back. She would go get him some, no problem. In the meantime, he could stay in the stable with the horse and donkey so as to not arouse suspicion. Fotis kissed Donkey Lucius on the head and padded off across the grass. She would be right back. Donkey Lucius was still reeling, but he trusted Fotis. She would be right back. It was fine. She's gone. Lucius heard. He turned and saw the bandits. They kicked in the door that Lucius and Fotis had just left out of, and in seconds were back with bags. Bags overflowing with gold and riches. Lucius, as a guest, had figured out that Milo kept his riches somewhere in the house, and apparently others in town had too. Lucius rolled his donkey eyes. That wasn't Lucius's problem. Until it was. You see, Milo had so many riches that the bandits couldn't carry them all. They loaded up the horse, then the donkey, then finally Lucius with the bags before opening up the stable and leading them out. Lucius fought, but learned why beasts of burden were so responsive to the whip. Before the alarm went up, the bandits and Lucius as a donkey were out of Hypatia and heading for the mountains.
finish up the story next week as we track Lucius's long journey home and see if he can ever become human again. If you're looking for something else to listen to, there's a new episode of Scoundrel out this week. We meet Julian Harvey, sailor, decorated aviator, and male model, as he just survived a wreck at sea, a wreck that apparently claimed the lives of everyone else on board. But as he undergoes questioning, the people start to wonder, is Julian telling the whole truth? Check out Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, by searching for that or by following the link in the show notes. Also, I'll keep this brief, but we rolled out the membership, ad-free and bonus episodes, on Apple Podcasts this week. So, if you want ad-free shows and don't want to put your credit card into our WordPress site, you can get the same price membership on there as well. And it all goes towards supporting the show, so thank you so much. The creature this time is the Lizard Man from South Carolina in the United States. Think about this. It's early morning in the 1980s in small town USA. You, a 17-year-old, just got off your shift at the McDonald's and, according to one source, have a bag full of filet of fish sandwiches on the passenger seat. First, why? Why more than, like, three filet of fishes? I think that's kind of the upper limit for McDonald's seafood, and they don't really keep. They come with the tartar sauce on them. You can't just throw them into a microwave. Anyway, I digress. You're driving home. Then you hear the pop. You grab the wheel to take control and pull over. You popped a tire. Okay, no big deal, you have a spare. But as you're changing it, you look up. Off in the distance, it's a figure standing in a field with glowing eyes, shuffling toward you. You work faster, but you look up again, and it's right there. It's seven feet tall, black-green, and it grabs the door to your car as you try to close it. You start the car and hit the gas, speeding off. You get up to 40 miles an hour in a matter of seconds and look back to see the thing not only keeping up, but gaining. It jumps on your car, tearing at the top of it, and you swerve, finally shaking it loose. When you get home, you tell your parents about it, stress eat the entire bag of filet of fish sandwiches, and pass out. In the morning, you learn that you're not the only one. People from all around Lee County, South Carolina, are reporting something lurking in the darkness. Something scratching up cars and houses of people who live on the edge of the swamp, and not like all the other animals in a swamp that scratch things. This is the Lizard Man. The young man, named Christopher Davis, set off a frenzy in the small town. Major national media swooped in, including Good Morning America. A radio station put out a $1 million reward for the creature, which is $2.5 million today, but the only thing they got was a guy who claimed to hit it but later recanted when the blood and scales were found to be fakes and he was arraigned for unlawfully carrying a pistol. The original story was big news, but it slowly died out. A book I read said it might have been a tall guy wearing a blanket, chasing people off his land after he kept losing air conditioners. Regardless, if you find yourself in the swamps of South Carolina, make sure you don't have a bag full of filet of fish because that's too many filet of fish That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to more of the music we use in the show notes. Myths and Legends is a registered trademark of Bardic Enterprises LLC. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>